years ago, Katie and I received an invitation to celebrate a friend's 60th birthday party. The elegance of the invitation was unlike any we had ever received. The paper, the printing, everything about it was something you sort of wanted to frame. And as we read it, we wondered if we could attend. The event would be held at the Beach Club dining room at Pebble Beach Resort, and the attire was formal. Uh, we didn't own anything formal, um, still don't. Um, renting a tuxedo and buying a dress was more than we could afford at the time. But then we thought, how could we decline such an invitation to honor a dear friend knowing that other mutual friends would also be part of this event? The decision seemed difficult until we determined that our relationships were more important than the obstacles in the way. Three times in the gospel, a sentence begins with this phrase, the Son of Man came, and here's how each one is answered. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then comes this peculiar one. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, the first two tell why Jesus came. The third seems to not belong with the others. You know that song? One of these things does not belong to the other. Yeah. The third one tells about the manner of Jesus' presence among us. Meals with Jesus represent something more than sharing food. They represent his sharing God's kingdom, God's agenda, God's connection with humanity. Meals with Jesus represent friendship and community, and they enact God's grace and reveal God's mission. Jesus ate meals with tax collectors and sinners, with friends and strangers. He ate with religious leaders and crowds. Some meals were not without controversy or dispute, as we learn in today's text. Pharisees and legal experts were paying more attention to Jesus as he grew in popularity, and his teachings, teachings challenged their own. Have you ever noticed how some people will ask a question of why out of curiosity to know something they don't already understand or know? And then others will sometimes ask as a form of accusation. Whenever I'm frustrated, my whys are really accusatory. And really, the essence of them is, why can't everyone be like me? Why can't people do it the way I want to do it? Why can't they think the way I think? Which sounds like a baby, but... <laughs> well, you judge for yourself. The religious leaders disapproved of something Jesus' followers didn't do, and therefore they accused Jesus of disregarding the tradition of the elders related to hand-washing. Now, as Jenny pointed out and, and read so clearly, there was a, you could tell there was a, a parenthesis there by Mark, the narrator of the story, 
And it's one of the reasons why scholars think that he, his primary audience were Gentiles, because he's explaining what this ritual was all about. You wouldn't have to do that to a Jewish audience. They would understand precisely what these rituals are. It was part of their regular practice. But if you're a Gentile, you don't understand at all. And so he's explaining it. And the first thing he tells us, it's not the kind of hand washing your mother demanded as personal hygiene. But it had to do with a ritual cleansing that symbolized being pure and acceptable to God. So as soon as they form this accusation, Jesus replies by quoting Isaiah and applies it directly to them. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are a long way off. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely rules, man-made rules. Jesus takes their concern over purity regulations and suggests that the reason God ever had these laws in the first place was to point to a deeper need in all of us which has to do with a need of being of, of a pure motive. What is our reason for doing anything that we do in relation to God? In accusing them, I mean, he then accuses them of lacking such a motive and calls them hypocrites, nothing more than people who pose, who give a pretense or play acting of their devotion before others so that others will revere them and think they're holy. By focusing on outward cleansing, they avoided the much deeper challenge which the gospel always gets at, which is the heart of the matter or the condition of our hearts. They were more concerned about themselves than they were with God. Now, who of us doesn't hate rules? And so we applaud Jesus here and we want to go, yes, Jesus, get rid of the rules. And we want to, or you want to remember this passage if you're a young person and your parents are applying rules, go, Jesus, you know, said, <laughs> said not me, it's Jesus saying that the rules are not really that important. Particularly when applied to religious practices. But sometimes, have you ever noticed it's a lot easier to follow rules than it is to follow God? Many people go to churches where the pastors tell them how to live every Sunday. Do this, do this, do this. You're not going to hear that here. If anything, Brenda and I are going to challenge you to think, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it take? And what are you willing to do? to get to the heart of the matter and what's most important in life. God's intention for us was never about keeping rules, but to live in relationship with him, to live a God-honoring, a God-directed life, to have our hearts oriented toward God and to beat in sync with God. In this sense, I think Jesus is saying to these Religious leaders that they seem to suffer some form of arrhythmia. The electrical impulses that coordinate our heartbeat 
when they're not working properly, cause our heart to beat irregularly or out of rhythm, either too fast or too slow. Such a condition at its best is nothing more than a bothersome, but at its worst, it can be life-threatening. Their hearts were beating for themselves, not for God. And that's what Jesus called them on. He said they had let go of the things God cares about in order to hold on to the things that people thought were important and they thought were important. Which makes us wonder what kind of values and practices do we hold on to that we think is so important to our sense of identity and being upright or good or acceptable to God. Imagine Jesus calling us by name to join him at his table. And as we hear him say, come, what goes through our minds before we feel like we can move past the obstacles and take our place at the table? Do we hear ourselves say, first, I've got to go buy the right kind of clothes in order to come? Or first, I must wash my hands and everything else in order to really feel clean in your presence. Or I must prove to you that I belong there and then I'll come. The more we emphasize cleanliness as a form of being accepted or approved by God, then the more separate and the more separatistic we become. Recall how Peter was called to the home of a God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius, as recorded in Acts 9 and 10. God had revealed to him in a dream of lowering a sheet with all kinds of animals Peter once thought were unclean, and God says, no, they're clean, Peter, eat. And with that, Peter entered Cornelius' home, and he related the message of the gospel to him to his family, and all his guests. And then Peter celebrated that the presence of God had come upon them. The, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon them in a very confirming way that Peter could recognize. And he celebrated what God had done in their midst. That was until a group of leaders from the Jerusalem church arrived. And then he separated himself from the Gentiles. And you know what Paul said of that? Paul said, Peter's separatistic actions were a hindrance to the gospel. Ouch. This sense of separatism ran deep in Israel's life story. God had chosen Abraham to be a source of blessing to all the nations of the earth and his descendants after him. They were to serve as God's instrument. Um, and to do so required that they be set apart. The, the word is consecrated for God's use. Set apart, distinct. And then as some would say, separate. So they might represent God and reflect God's character. But that didn't give them the license to equate such a practice with a sense of being superior or more favored by God. 
nor were they to regard ceremonial acts of cleanliness as some self-effort of becoming pure. The point of such rituals was to encourage their humility and dependence on God, not to assume their approval and value to God was based on some external observance. And so the prophets consistently rebuked them, stressing that cleanliness and purity were a matter of the heart. And out of one's conduct, based on character, the transformation of one's character, not on keeping the rules. First time I ever read the sentence I'm about to read for you out of a novel, I was stunned. I thought, this can't be right. And then I realized it was more than right. It convicted me of how I get in the way, how I become a hindrance to the gospel as well. Not perhaps through some ritual cleansing, but in my righteous thinking. Let me set the stage for you about who the character is. It, it's Father Francis Chisholm from A.J. Cronin's The Keys of the Kingdom. The man's a missionary in China, and he's not inclined to treat conversion lightly. So when he had saved the life of a boy, um, the father, who happened to be the most respected and influential man in the village, came to Father Chisholm and offered to become a Christian. Father Francis was all excited, and so he asked him, do you believe, are you prepared to be instructed? To which Mr. Chia replied, no. Well, why then do you say you wish to profess faith? In customary Chinese fashion, Mr. Chia answered, to repay you. You have done the greatest good to me, I must do the greatest good to you. And then Father Francis says, it's, it doesn't work that way, and tried to explain that what, what becoming a Christian really means and what it's all about, and, and Mr. Chia says, well, that's not going to happen. And, and then he, but he does say, I will give you money and I will provide you laborers to build your mission, which is what you desire. And then childhood friend and atheist doctor, Willie Tullock, arrives in China to help fight a staggering epidemic. So side by side, Dr. Tillich using his medical training to stop the spread of a disease and Father Chisholm laboring to, the, uh, laboring to spread the contagion of Christian faith. And then Dr. Tillich falls victim to the disease he is fighting. And Chisholm comes to keep vigil with him. The narrator says the priest knelt in prayer by the bedside. He prayed for help, for inspiration, but he seemed strangely numb, gripped by a kind of stupor. And then Tillich calls out, funny, I still can't believe in God. And here comes these amazing words. Does that matter now? God believes in you. And the first time I read it, I thought, well, that's not going to get him converted. 
what's wrong with you? You got to tell him what to do. You got to tell him to repent. You got to tell him to say the Jesus prayer. You got to give him the formula. You got to help him with the rituals. You got to focus on him. And then I realized, no. He was representing the presence of God. And the last thing Tullock uh, needed was to, to once again be pressured, to be, to be hounded, to be badgered. What he needed to hear was grace, who God really is. God's for you. That was a novel, and I thought I was reading the Bible. I thought, why am I being convicted by a novel? And I realized how many times I've been the obstacle in someone experiencing and encountering the magnificent, astonishing love of God that's unrelenting up to the last breath. Like Peter and Israel, we tend to think of separation and holiness as avoiding contact with others rather than to face our own condition of our inner lives. We have a greater fear of being contaminated by outward forms of sin rather than face the temptations and destructive forms of it that come from deep within. This is why Jesus enumerates the subtle ways in which such thoughts begin in our hearts. These aren't actions. They sound like actions. They sound like uh, uh, a, um, when you're in a court and they bring the accusations, the charges. They sound like charges of someone on trial. Just so that we can apprehend them as being Presbyterians, I'm going to reverse the order that they appear because they're a little more palatable for us. We, we might identify with them. Well, the first one, maybe not. Foolishness. But don't raise your hands. <laughs> Arrogance. Insult. Envy. Unrestrained immorality. Deceit. Greed. These are thoughts, remember. This is the stuff that stirs in us. Adultery, murder, theft, sexual sins. The things we guard against by avoiding on the outside are unavoidably present on the inside. And before we think some religious practice is going to solve the problem, we need to come clean with God about who we really are. Rather than rely on any efforts of our own, we must admit our need for God to make our hearts clean. We're not going to do that. We must admit that there are obstacles in the way of our accepting Jesus' invitation before we present some lame excuse about why we can't come. We've all heard them before. I'm not really hungry. Uh, I've got better things to do. I'm not sure I really want to spend that much time with you. And then we must also ask ourselves, how can we possibly 
bear the gospel to someone else like Peter did or present a blessing like Abraham and his descendants were supposed to. When the person we're trying to reach, we're keeping our distance from for fear they might influence our lives. Do we see that person as someone whom God wants to bless and reach or as someone who poses a threat to our standing with God? If it's the latter, then how will we ever serve as a means or an instrument that God can use? So when the invitation comes, not just when it comes to us, but when it comes to someone we know, who are we to get in the way and tell them they're not ready? We should be the ones encouraging them. You're accepted. God believes in you. You don't want to miss this invitation. So be it.